You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Love having a noisy church. Great to have a noisy church. And uh, just a reminder to you, if you're parents of little ones like I am, we love the noises that your kids make. Reminds us that our church is living. Reminds us that God is uh, gracious in giving us children as a blessing to our church community. So if your little ones make a little bit of noise this morning, don't freak out about it. We love the fact that you're with us this morning. Hey, I've got to tell you that, uh, <laughs> thanks Judah, uh, object lesson. Uh, i got to tell you this morning that I, uh, I feel anxious about speaking to you. Um, I, I never do feel anxious about uh, preaching. I never, I never experience any kind of level of nervousness. More people, less nerves. So as our church has grown, I felt less and less nervous about getting up the front and, and speaking. I'll feel more nervous about speaking to you one-to-one after the service than I will in this context. It's just the weird way that I am. I, I, I got to tell you this morning that I have felt really anxious about sharing this message with you because I know that when it comes to this issue that Jesus is going to raise of uh, divorce and remarriage, um, uh, that for many of us, this is not an, an academic thing. This is, this is very much part of our experience. Um, if my experience in pastoral ministry over the last decade is anything to go by, uh, the people who tend to hate divorce the most are people who have been through divorce themselves. Uh, they carry with them wounds that are deep. And so, um, honestly... This is part of the reason we preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. It's so that we can't avoid difficult things. Jesus brought this up, so we've got to talk about it. Um, We've set aside Mark chapter 10 to speak about in its entirety, but I'm not going to get there. I'm going to get to the first 12 verses that that Pedro and Jimmy just read for us. Uh, We're not going to be able to cover everything. And so this is why it's so important that we make available to you a forum for further questions and so on. So in the Bible passages, as they come up on the screen today, you'll see a number to text. If you have any questions, we'll get to those this week and try and answer them as they come up. I'm aware of the inadequacy, not only of myself as a teacher, but of this forum to try and, uh, to try and get to everything that we could get to on this topic. So just before we do jump into this, let me remind you about who it is that is speaking to us who it is that is giving us this instruction on marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is a God who loves us. Uh, This is a God who, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So you see that in, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God cannot be faithless because he is faithfulness. That's who he is. That's his nature. And so as we come to a topic that can arouse in some people a sense of condemnation or shame, we need to remember that even in our brokenness, even in our waywardness and our rebelliousness, God remains faithful always. There is no one in this room who has done anything in their lives that, ha- that, that means that God is unable to love them and to look at them right now, even now, And to say, I have no reservations whatsoever about loving you and calling you to be my son or daughter. That's the truth about who God is. 
And though we're talking specifically this morning about marriage and divorce and remarriage and so on, we need to know that as a whole community, each one of us has failed to love God as we ought to have loved him. Each one of us has been those faithless people that Paul talks about as he writes to Timothy. Each one of us has. And that because of that fact, because all of us are faithful, uh, faithless in our relationship with God, God knows what it's like to experience broken relationships. If you remember back to our last series in the Minor Prophets, if you remember our, our um, sermon on Hosea, you will remember that in Hosea we learn that God knows what it's like to have his bride commit adultery. He knows what it's like to, to, to suffer through divorce. God knows what it's like to experience deeply broken relationships. And so we come here this morning and we allow ourselves to be spoken to both by a God who knows us and loves us in spite of our brokenness and faithlessness and a God who knows what it is to experience deep pain in relationship. So with that being said, let's jump into Mark chapter 10. And I'd love you to follow along as we go. We'll be camped in Mark 10 as well as 1 Corinthians 7 if you want to get a finger or a, a, uh, a bookmark in there as well. Okay, 10 verse 1 to 5. He set out, that's Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. So again, so important that we get the context here. The context of this passage is that these Pharisees have come to trap Jesus. They've come to try and get him to deny the veracity or the truth or the authority of God's law. And so, once again, we're going to see this throughout Mark. Here's, here's the meme. This is the meme, right? This is, what, this is what Jesus needs to know at this point, and he does know it, which is why he throws it back to them and asks them, what do you think the law says? When it comes to divorce, what does Moses say? And they respond that Moses said they could write a divorce certificate and send their wife on her way. Jesus' response is to name that law, to name that allowance of of divorce certification, to name it as a necessary evil. So Jesus sees the divorce that Moses allowed as a necessary evil evil. That is, that it's not God's intention, but God allowed it because of sin. He's very, very plain about that, right? He says, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. This is a necessary evil, but not God's intention. What was God's intention in marriage? What is his ideal? Verse 6 to 9. Let's keep reading. But from beginning of creation, the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, in contrast to this necessary evil that Moses allowed you, here's what God really wants. God wants a man and a woman joined together such that no one should separate them. He goes right back to pre-sin, right? He says, because of sin, this happened, but I'm going to take you back to before there was any sin, back to creation itself. And he says, God created men and women, man and woman, husband and wife, to be joined together permanently, one flesh. So what Jesus is saying here is, you've got the wrong mindset. Stop thinking about marriage as this sort of divisible union. One plus one equals two, and then we can separate the one from the one, and they can go their own way. He says, no, no, one plus one equals one. When God joins man and woman together, he makes them one flesh. Therefore, they are indivisible. And so he sets up this whole different way of thinking about marriage, which he says isn't a new way. It actually goes back to the beginning. He says that the idea of marriage is an idea of covenant. That when a, a, a man and a woman are married, it's God who joins them together. And so there forms this covenant between God and man, God and woman, man and woman, woman and man, all in this sort of Trinitarian dynamic. It's a covenant that God establishes from the beginning. So if you're looking for what does the Bible say about marriage, this is the consistent thing from the first page right through to the end. This is the consistent image that the Bible has. It's one of covenant. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage itself exists to be like a living image of God's love for his people. He says marriage is a mystery, and and here's the answer to the mystery. It exists to show how Christ loves the church. That in a sense, God is married to us. He is committed through covenant to us and that marriage should reflect that reality. Marriage is a living picture of Christ's love for the church. So people in Jesus' day had stopped believing that. People in Jesus' day had stopped believing that marriage was a covenant. They saw it now as a contract, something that you could override with a different contract, a contract of divorce, a certificate that Moses allowed them to write. And Jesus says, you need to get back to God's original intention. You've stopped thinking about marriage in terms of covenant. And I want to say, we as a community, as a culture at large, have stopped thinking about marriage as a covenant as well. We've just done exactly what they were doing 2,000 years ago. This is nothing new. And so instead of thinking about marriage in terms of covenant... We've, we've started to believe these other ways of viewing marriage, th- these things that I'm going to call myths, myths about marriage. And there are hundreds, I'm sure, but I've, I've chosen three main ones to focus on, okay? So rather than believing marriage is a covenant, we often believe the myths of compatibility, convenience, 
and comparison. That's three C's. Four C's if you count covenant, all right? So I'm work. This is why you pay me the big bucks, all right? Four C's. I just want to talk a little bit about these, these things, and then we'll get back into what the Bible says about, about marriage, okay? So first one, first myth that we believe is this idea of compatibility, this idea of the one. You know the one I'm talking about? The one. We, 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 we indoctrinate our kids with this from a very early age through fairy tales and Disney movies, right? So you, you, are, you, you have this one existing somewhere out there, and your role, it's like in the Matrix, we're all, we're all trying to find the one, the one, the, the one that will perfectly uh, complete us, the one that we are ideally compatible with, they're out there somewhere. And our role is to find them, and if we find them, then we will live happily ever after, like a princess and a prince, right? Now, this is obviously absurd. Even just if you just think logically about it, it's absurd, right? Because if this was true, then anywhere along the line, if anyone makes one mistake, everyone else is screwed, right? Because you took my one, and then so I had to take someone else's one, and then it's wrecked. So it's logically absurd. It's also practically absurd. It's a lie. The idea that your marriage will work if you find someone who's ideally compatible with you is a lie. Who, who, who's responsible for this lie? The first person I hold responsible for this is Satan. This is a satanic lie, right? And you need to see it as such. It's a satanic lie that Satan has put together in order to wreck your life and to ruin your covenant. The next person I blame for this lie is this guy. <laughs> Jerry Maguire, you complete me, right? It's just nonsense. There is no one that completes you. That person doesn't exist. If you think about physically, if I'm standing here, there is no dotted line that someone can fit perfectly in that will complete me as a person. It, that person doesn't exist, and if I believe that they do exist, I will absolutely, when I think I've found them, I will idolize them. I will see them as the God who restores me, completes me, right? Fulfills me, satisfies me. And this is a little saying we have, and it's absolutely true. Whatever we idolize, we will demonize. So if you go into a relationship thinking that person completes me, the first time they let you down, which will be on the first day that you meet them, right, and then subsequently for the rest of your life, you will ultimately demonize them because they fail to be the God that you need them to be. It's this myth. It's a lie, and we need to get... I mean, I know that this exists at some level in our community. This is not an out there thing, not a Hollywood thing. This is in us. It's nonsense. The truth is that there is no one who is compatible with you. No one. There is no one who fits perfectly together with you because you're weird, all right? You are. You can call it being a unique snowflake. I say it's weird. You're weird. And here's, here's, this is devastating, all right? It's, it's funny, but it's also devastating because 
The divorce rate for people who are married first time is about 30%. It's actually going down and has been going down since no-fault divorce was introduced, I think, in the 70s. Right, so about 30%. But the divorce rate for remarried people is 60%. Right? Doubles for remarried people. And, and here's what's behind it, I think, at least in part. If the idea is that my marriage is failing because we're not compatible, then I will pursue compatibility with someone else The fact is that when I find someone else, they're not compatible either, and now I'm wise to it, so I'm going to get rid of that person as quickly as I can to minimize the carnage. That's what drives an exponentially greater divorce rate for remarried people. It's a myth, and it's killing us. The truth is, as Jesus sees it, God takes incompatible people and makes them one flesh. God takes incompatible people and joins them together. God takes two puzzle pieces that do not and cannot fit together and joins them. It's a miracle. That doesn't mean that everything is smooth sailing for people who have been joined together by God. Far from it. But it does mean that God has, in reality, in the cosmos, right, in 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 truth, God has joined us together, and therefore I can say with confidence that every marriage between two Christian people has a chance of being redeemed, even marriages that are utterly broken, even where there's been adultery. Every marriage where there are two Christians who are committed to change who are committed to obedience, every marriage has a chance of being redeemed because what God has joined together, let no one separate. God has made us one flesh and God is in the business, like the full-time business of making broken things beautiful. So that's, that's one myth, right? Compatibility. Next one is convenience. I need to be really quick. So this is just the idea that a marriage should last as long as it works. This is the time frame we put on marriages. They should last as long as they work. And the average length of marriage for people who end up getting divorced is 12 years, which is about as long as you can make anything work. 12 years is actually pretty good going. To make something work consistently for 12 years, that's a pretty big effort. That's on the up as well, by the way. Back in the 90s, that was 10 years. We're getting kind of a little bit better at making things work. But the underlying myth is a myth. (laughs) The irony of all of this this idea, this prevailing and prevalent idea that marriages should always work and when they stop working, we should end them. The irony of all this is in the marriage vows themselves, right? The marriage vows are written to undercut this kind of idea. They're written to be subversive to this kind of idea. This is the irony, right? In the vows, I say for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness 
and in health. Like all of those things are inconvenient. When things are worse, inconvenient. When I'm poor, it's inconvenient. When my wife is sick, inconvenient. When I'm going through marriage preparation for couples who are engaged, and I try and do it even before they get engaged, I get them to sit down, look at each other in the eye, and say the vows to one another. With a straight face, say those vows to one another, and see if you really mean it. Because if you don't, don't go ahead with it. Sometimes it's those vows themselves that will keep you from ending it. All right, compatibility, convenience, last one. Comparison, this is a killer. Oh, my word. This idea that I take my marriage, which is messed up and just constantly fraught with danger of divorce, right? And then I compare that to all these other couples around me who have perfect marriages, who are just so in love with each other and whose kids are obedient and... Their garden is neat and right, that idea. This, especially in churches, this is killer. Because here's what I know. Our car park is miraculous. It has miraculous properties. It's got angel dust out there. I know that you can be screaming at each other at the lights, and then when you arrive in the car park, it's like <laughs> Adam and Eve before the fall. You're just naked and without shame. You laugh because you know it's true. And so you come to church and your experience of your marriage is that it sucks and then you look around and everyone loves each other so much. And so this, this comparison kills our marriages. The truth is, everyone's marriage sucks. There's a continuum and God is moving us from sucking to where it's like reflective of his love for the church, and everyone's on the continuum. Some of us, by God's grace, are getting a little closer to the ideal. But all of us are struggling. And so here's what I want. This is my, this is my, my dream for marriage ministry in our church. I just want some couples in this church to have a ministry of messiness, where you walk into church yelling at each other. Or you invite us around to your house, and it's a dump, right? Uh, whatever. Like, you're, you... you you, you, when we say, how are your kids going? You're like, they're free and annoying, to be honest. Like, that kind of ministry. That would be a ministry of blessing to us, and it would ease the pressure on some of us, the pre- that pressure that drives marriages apart. So, how are we doing? Doing well. <laughs> Just relax. I want, I want to get to some practic- practical stuff because God is so gracious in his word. He gives us really practical teaching. Whether we receive that teaching or not is entirely up you know, between you and God and we try and cultivate a, an atmosphere in here of receptivity to God's word. That doesn't make it easy, but we want to be obedient to it. We don't stand on God's word, right? It is over us, it informs us, it teaches us. And so here's, here's where I go 
when I want to get to the practical nuts and bolts on marriage. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is answering questions that have been sent to him via another letter that we don't have from the church in Corinth to him. Questions, they're really confused about marriage, sex, singleness, slavery, all of these things. They're really confused. They're like, if, if, this is, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is returning, how should we think about this? So they ask him, like, some people are saying marriage is a bad thing. You know, it's fleshly. It's, and some people are saying sex is a bad thing. It's like all, you know, it's, it's, it's sweaty and, 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 and earthly. And, and, and we, we're trying to be, you know, up in heaven. And Paul says, that's all rubbish. Marriage is great. Sex is great. Married people should be having lots of sex, right? He, he answers these very practical questions. And then he gets to this, this very practical questions about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage. And so I've got six different categories of people, and all six of these kinds of people, categories of people, will be represented in our congregation this morning or, or by those listening, listening online. So I'm just going to present this to you as I read it, and then we really need to chat. Chat in small groups, chat after the service, send your questions. We need, we need, we need to do more. So first of all, uh, the category of person probably most, most represented here. Um, if you're married to a fellow believer. So if you're here this morning, you're married to someone, they're a believer, you're a believer, this is what Paul says to you. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. That's, he's referring to Jesus' words in Mark that we just read this morning. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. That's part A of verse 10 and then verse 11. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Fairly plain and simple, straight to the point. If you're married to another Christian, divorce shouldn't be on the table. And here's honestly what... I say to couples, and, and you need to know, there are lots of people in our church whose marriages are in a lot of trouble. It's just, let's just take that, you know, part the curtain. And, and when I'm in that situation, the thing I say to them first is to say, let's take divorce off the table. Let's just, let's just remove it from our options list, and then that'll really focus our thinking about reconciliation, redemption, restoration. I've had to do this in my own marriage. I've been married 13 years now. I've had to do this several times. We're just past the, uh, the, the average divorce space, right? 12 years. And what I need to constantly say to myself is, whatever comes along, however much trouble we face, divorce just isn't on the options list. I'm married to a fellow believer, and so I believe that God is actively working for the restoration of our marriage. Now, just, just to really pull back the curtain, you need to know, like, Renee and I have done heaps of marriage counselling. I don't mean counselling others. I mean us being counselled. At this point, we go to a marriage counsellor just about every week. And, uh, how you doing, buddy? Um... And our kids know all about it. They need to know, they need to grow up knowing that marriages require work, like hard work. And even if you have a good marriage, 
I would advise you to see a counsellor to further help you develop your marriage. So he says, first of all, if you're married to a believer, divorce is off the table. Then he says, if you're, second one, if you are divorced and you desire to remarry, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 10 to 11, we'll say again, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So the message there for those who are divorced, who have been divorced, his teaching is to remain that way or otherwise be reconciled to your husband or wife. So again, he says, this is not just coming from me. This is coming from the Lord. So back to Mark 10, verse 10 to 12. Let's repeat what Jesus said. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This comes across as being like, whoa, that's intense, particularly in the culture we live in, right? But if you're like Jesus and you have a view of marriage which is all about covenant faithfulness, then this makes complete complete sense. When you establish that foundation that marriage is not just a contract but actually a covenant between you and the other person and you and God, then this kind of teaching makes complete sense. So Paul, just building on what Jesus says, says if you have divorced then God's desire is for you to remain single or be reconciled to the person you have a covenant with. Now, Jesus does make an exception to this. Not in Mark's gospel, probably because Mark's audience just assumed this knowledge already. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes this exception. It's one of the exceptions we'll talk about this morning. One of sort of three things that can end a marriage. He says, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the exception he gives there is sexual unfaithfulness in the case of adultery. Now again, we see from God's example and in the book of Hosea, adultery doesn't necessarily equal divorce. God chooses to remain faithful to his bride even when she commits adultery against him. And I've seen cases of marriages being reconciled even when there's been adultery. But Jesus does make this exception. If your spouse has severed the covenant relationship by, through sexual immorality, through adultery, then he does make provision for the marriage to be to be ended. But he says, unless that exception applies, then divorced people ought to remain as they are or be reconciled. Now, just, I'm, I'm just thinking at this point, if you are here this morning and you are thinking about a way forward for your relationship or for your dissolved relationship or whatever, if you're thinking of any way forward, please... Please lean on the 
church to help you process some of these things. Please lean on us as, as pastors. Our job is to be able to take what God says and apply it to our circumstances. So if you would like to meet and talk about this, or if you're thinking about making any kind of monumental, cataclysmic decision regarding your marriage or your future marriage or your past marriage or whatever, then please do, please do use the church. Don't do this alone. Things go bad when we try and do these things alone. Please do use the church. Use the leadership. Use your small group to help discern these things according to what God has said, trusting that every one of God's commands is for our good. I believe that with all my heart. All right, next group of people. He wants to talk to those who are married to an unbeliever who wants to stay married. So you can imagine first century, Christianity has just come about. There's going to be lots of people in Corinth who were married, and then Christianity came along. One of them became a Christian, the other one didn't. This happens in our context as well. It happens in our church. What happens if you are a Christian, you're married to a non-Christian, but the non-Christian wants to stay married? Paul says this. I, not the Lord, that is, this is not something Jesus expressly said, but I'm saying it with the authority of the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So, if you're married to a non-Christian, but the non-Christian is like, yeah, I'm, you know, you become a Christian, it's a little bit weird, but I'm cool with it, I want to honour what we have together, then Paul says, don't divorce them. Don't let becoming a Christian be a reason to break a covenant. God has joined you together, let's honour what he's done. Now, what about the other group of people? These, these are people who have married an unbeliever who wants to divorce them. And in Paul's context, he's speaking specifically about people who want to get divorced because their spouse is now one of these crazy Christians. This happens around the world today, particularly in Islamic countries. Someone might become a Christian. That, therefore, provides a very tricky environment for, in which for them to, to exercise their faith. For some of them, it will mean violent ostracism. For some of them, it will mean immediate divorce. And so Paul says to those married to an unbeliever who wants to divorce, if the unbeliever leaves, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. What he's saying is this. If you're married to an unbeliever and they say, well, it's me or Jesus, Paul says, choose Jesus. He is your first loyalty. That goes for all the happily married couples in this place as well. If you have your wife or husband slightly above Jesus in any respect, you're in dangerous territory. So Paul says, go with Jesus, even if that means your spouse Leaves you. We've got to keep going. Number five, divorce, the, the person who is, he gets really, I mean, he gets really complex. This, and he knows life is complex. So there's probably going to be a situation that applies to you that he doesn't get to. That's why we need to chat more, all right? But here he goes. If you were divorced 
and remarried before you were saved. You got married, that ended a divorce, then you got remarried, then you got saved, maybe in your 40s, 50s, I don't know. What do you do then? Now you're saved, you want to be receptive to God's word, you want to be obedient to him, you know that he kind of didn't want this thing to happen that you did, but you did it before. You were sensitive to his guidance and his word. And so now, what are you meant to, are you meant to end this one and go back to that one? What, how, do you, how do you save this situation? In that case, Paul, and this is too lengthy to get into for our time, but in verse 17 to 24, Paul gives all of these situations in which he calls people to remain in the state they were in when they were called by God. That is, when they were saved, if you're a slave, remain a slave. Unless you can get your freedom, in which case, get it. But he, he even goes as far as to say, if you were circumcised when you were saved, then stay circumcised. I don't know how you undo that, but it, the point is, he's trying to make an emphatic point. Stop, stop thinking about it. He's trying to make an emphatic point, and the context is marriage, right? So he says, God called you in the state you're in. He knew you were divorced. He knew you were remarried. He knew that that's not his best intention for you, but he called you nonetheless because God calls broken people. And so he says, in that case, remain as you are. Even if you were divorced and remarried and that wasn't God's intention for you, as you remarried, God was the one who was joining you together. And so honor that. Remain in the state in which you are called. Last of all, he talks about death. So if your spouse dies, this is 1 Corinthians 7. And verse 39 to 40. Do I have that there? Maybe I don't. I do. He says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she is free to be, to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happy if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So he says a legitimate dissolving of the marriage happens when one party dies. That's, of course, why we say, till death do us part. And so he says, for people whose spouses have died, you are now free. Free to remarry, but in his opinion, you're probably better off just being single. And he gives reasons for that. He says you're more able to serve those around you if you don't have the, your spouse as a, as a major concern and so on. So the point is there's freedom. Death releases you from the marriage covenant because there is no marriage after death. So if your spouse dies, you might be like my dad whose spouse died young and he's never remarried, never countenanced the idea of remarriage. In his mind, he's still very much one flesh with my mum. Renee and I were crying constantly last night as, she, as we watched um, Afterlife on Netflix, which is, which is quite brilliant, actually, a series by Ricky Gervais. If you can handle the intense profanity, it's actually quite brilliant in its sort of portrayal of grief and loss. And, and in that case, the guy does, doesn't want to countenance dating or remarriage or anything. He's still, he's still one flesh in his own mind. But Paul says, 
in fact, if you take out all of that genuine emotion, in fact, the marriage is over now and you're free, free to remarry or free not to remarry. It's, it's your call. The only caveat he puts on that is that he says you must marry in the Lord. And this is his caveat for all marriage, that a Christian must marry another Christian for all of the most obvious reasons that we don't have time to go into now. So, there's a, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot, there's a lot there for us to process. And it's not just, I know, I know that it's not just intellectual. I know that everyone in this room to some degree will be affected by some of these things and some of us deeply personally. And I know for some of us, this Christian ethic of marriage, which is really unequivocal, like it's quite plain. I know for many of us, irrespective of how plain it is, it's very difficult for us to receive. It's deeply difficult. And it might cause some distress, some disappointment, some disheartening. And so that's why I long for our church to be the kind of church characterized by truth and love. Just as Jesus was himself characterized by truth and love. You've received some truth, I pray, this morning. Now we as a church need to gather in love. We really do. There is no one in this church who this doesn't apply to. If you're visiting this morning, we're not calling you to do anything. But if you're a regular member of this family, then this is a call on your life to be an expression of God's faithful love. We'll give you an opportunity to come pray in a minute. That's it. We want that to be an expression of faithful love. We want you to be in a small group so that there can be 10, 12 people around you who can embrace you and, and communicate God's love to you even when you're feeling disappointed or or disheartened, or distressed. And let me finish with the words of Mark 10, which is Jesus' reassurance to those of us who are feeling now, if I obey God's word in this, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to have to forego something that I deeply want. Either because I want to be remarried and I see that that's not God's intention for me, or because it means I have to work on my marriage and all I want to do is leave it, or because I just want to marry someone who is available and they're not a Christian. Like all of this is cost. All of this is less than convenient. Here's what Jesus says. Just let, we'll just let these words linger and I'll pray for us. He says in Mark 10, 28 to 31, Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, 
brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For many of us, the picture that God has given us this morning of our state of obedience before him feels like being last, feels like being least, feels like we're missing out. Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. There is not one act of obedience for my sake and the sake of the gospel that will not be rewarded in this life and in the age to come. Let's take a hold of those promises. I want to pray for us a revelation of God's nature that I pray will be encouraging for us. Band, why don't you come up and and you can be ready to lead us in song. Why don't don't we all stand up now? Let's stand and, and just receive... Receive this grace from from the Lord. Father, we believe in this church that your word is a light to our feet, that your word is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And we know, Lord, and I feel it in my own heart, this tension, a tension between that which I want to do and that which you have willed for me to do, a tension between wanting to go my own way and yet wanting to be obedient to your leading and your word, your commands and your will for my life, this tension between wanting things to be convenient and comfortable and yet being called to a costly discipleship where I have to die to myself. This tension between wanting to live as a husband, concerned with my own affairs and pleasing myself and yet being called to love my wife like Christ loved the church laying down his life for her. This is the tension we live in. And so into that very real tension Father, I just I want to announce your goodness. You love us. You've always loved us. You will always love us. When we are faithless, you remain faithful. When we commit adultery, you stay true. Father, for those of us here this morning who are living under a weight of shame, I pray that by the power of the gospel and the precious blood of Jesus, that you would wash that shame away, that you would replace it with acceptance and adoption and grace. Father, we know the truth, even if it's only in our own hearts. We know the truth that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned sexually. All of us have committed adultery in our hearts. All of us 
have made ourselves unworthy. And yet you pursue us. And yet you love us. And yet you continue to call us into life and light. Please help us hear your voice. I pray that you would minister healing among us, healing for marriages that are just about holding on, healing for marriages that could yet be reconciled, healing in the hearts of single people and widows and widowers, the kind of healing that brings wholeness. Please help us to know that if we have you, we have everything, and if we have you, we lack nothing. I pray now for a great outpouring of love to come from your spirit into the hearts of everyone here gathered, everyone listening online, Lord, that you would fill us now with a great and intimate sense of your presence and your peace. And I pray likewise for the church, this church, these people, to be a community of love and reconciliation and hope, and covenant-keeping grace. Father, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.